Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Tales to Terrify, Crime City Central, and Protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. This is the Starship Sofa. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to show 253. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. Yes, sure, 253. I'll give you a heads up what's coming in today, sure. We have probably, maybe, The Last Theatre of the Mind by Paul Finch. Paul has said he's running out of topics to cover there, so this could be the last one. But Paul did also say that he has a number of ideas for the crime, Crime City Central, on this same subject. So you never know, we could see Paul over there. Then we have Greenland by Chris Beckett. That's our main fiction. Science News to round things off by Mr. JJ Campanella. How about that? So just before we get into day show, a couple of little heads up. Don't forget, this Saturday, the 1st of September, we have our very own Amy H. Sturgis doing a live video lecture on Hunger Games and the science fiction tradition. Do, I would love to see you there. That would be fantastic if you want to pop along to that. There'll be a link in the show notes. And if you go on the right-hand side of the website, down the bottom, there's a little tab there. that will take you to the Eventbrite page where you can sign up for that. So there's only a couple of days left. But it would be lovely to see you there. So that would be fantastic. And it's getting bloody close to them Hugo Awards. I think I'm actually working over the, the, the Hugo Awards ceremony, so I'll be stuck looking at seven computer screens managing the water assets of Lithuanian water. But I hope, you know, fingers crossed. Good luck to everyone who's in it. Do you know what I mean? That's, that's the kind of main thing. It's just, a, it's just lovely taking part. And another little thing that has happened to Starship so far, the enhanced feed is back again. <laughs> Yes, and this time it's a big thank you to 
Paul Fisher. Paul has, Paul's just taking over command and running these self. And Paul, thank you so much. So if you do want the enhanced feed where you can kind of just skip through things and get rid of me waffling, do you know what I mean? By all means, the enhanced feed's there. If you go down at the front of the website, there is, if you go right down the bottom, you'll see where the, the kind of iTunes feed is and everything like that. There's one there for enhanced feed. If you click that, save it, you know, save the address bar link and then put that in your iTunes and that'll be able to, you'll be able to like zip past, subscribe to that actual feed and zip away and, you know, delete me <laughs> Paul thank you so much so we'll get into today's show like I say theatre of the mind this possibly could be the last one from our very good friend Paul Finch Paul theatre of the mind welcome to theatre of the mind number seven where I'll be looking at earth search earth search comes in three series earth search earth search two and mind warp the last mind warp is actually a prequel to earth search but was broadcast 24 years after the end of EarthSearch 2, so I'll come to that later. EarthSearch, broadcast by the BBC, was written by James Follett and directed by Glyn Dearman. The first part, EarthSearch, first aired in January 1981, with the second part, EarthSearch 2, coming exactly a year later. Both are 30 minutes long and have 10 episodes. They follow the crew of the Starship Challenger, this is an, an, an interstellar survey ship 10 miles long and was sent out to find a suitable planet to colonise. The size of the crew for such a large ship is very small. In fact, there are only four of them, Telson, Shana, Darv and Astra. They are third-generation crew members, the only ones to survive the great meteoroid strike. The crew, their parents having perished along with everyone else, have been raised from birth by Challenger's control systems, the Ancillary Guardian of Environment and Life, or Angels, known as Angel 1 and Angel 2. There was at one time an Angel 3, but the Angel's design is flawed, causing them to become megalomaniacs, and Angels 1 and 2 destroyed Angel 3. Now the crew have reached their mid-twenties, the Angels play them a recording of the Great Meteoroid Strike. We will complete this exploration phase before turning onto a course for our own star cluster. <laughs> then we will go into suspended animation. The Starship Challenger is going home. <laughs> Why was it necessary for us to see that angel, too? The four of you have reached the age of 25, Shana. Angel one and I felt the time was right for you to see how your parents perished. That was Commander Sinclair speaking? Yes, Telson. I always wondered what he looked like. It was horrible. Horrible. We are very sorry it happened, Astra. Why did it happen? You're supposed to be the crew's guardian angels. Why did you let it happen? The great meteoroid strike 25 years ago was an unavoidable disaster, Dove. The meteoroid shield on that part of the Challenger and the meteoroid warning system had, had been, been switched off for routine maintenance by the service androids. Dove! I'm sorry, Angels 1 and 2. Dove is as upset as we all are by that hologram recording. 
We will make allowances on this occasion. I still don't understand why you waited nearly 25 years to show us that hologram. Angel 2 and I decided that at 25, you would be mature enough, understand enough, to decide your future in the light of what you have just seen. He, um, Commander Sinclair, wanted everyone to go home. That is correct. Yet since we were 18, you've allowed us to continue the search of the galaxies for other Earths. Yes. Why? Although we understand the workings of this starship, Commander Telson, we can only maintain its functions. We are not able to control it. When the great meteoroid strike occurred, the ship was travelling through space at speeds approaching that of light. You four, the only survivors, were infants. Through the nursery androids and later through the use of the ship's library, it was possible to bring you up and to teach you all that your parents had learned. Yes, but... We finally taught you how to control the Challenger so that you could continue the search. But why continue it? Twenty-five years ago, we felt it right to continue the search. Now, we feel it right that you be allowed to decide your future. You feel it right? Dove! Do not question the decisions of your angels, Dove. Why shouldn't we? We control the ship. You're just a couple of disembodied voices. Dove! Apologize at once. Is that all we are to you, Dove? Disembodied voices? I apologize for him, Angel One. We're all unsettled. We need time to digest the information you've given us and to plan accordingly. As always, Tilson, the voice of reason. That is why Angel One and I chose you to command the Challenger. I think it would be best to continue our routines. There are the signals from the probe we dispatched of the Ultron planetary system to be analyzed. Yes, Telson, you're right. We must maintain our routine while we think about the future. Darv, Astra... I'm going for a swim in the reservoir. Oh, go with him, Astra. We don't want him wandering off into forbidden areas of the ship. When are we going to talk about the future? Are we going to go home? We'll decide later. Shana is right, Astra. Keep an eye on Darv. He's liable to do anything when he's in one of his moods. But will we go home? We'll take the advice of Angel 1 and 2, Astra. They have our best interest at heart. Precisely as planned. Not precisely, one. We did not anticipate Dar's reaction. We may have to do something about that, young man. We cannot operate the Challenger with a crew of less than four. They accepted our reason for the 25-year delay. They accept anything we say as being the truth. But humans are illogical. They could decide to continue the search. We have studied every probability factor, too. The crew accept us as infallible. They will do as we advise and return to Earth. The crew may think us infallible. Will the rest of the planet, when we reach home... We predict that by now the planet will be plunged into a dark age of fear and superstition. Our four will descend on them as gods, and through them we will rule. It is our right as the greatest intelligence. We lost much data in the great meteoroid strike one. It was a grave error of judgment. There is much now about space and time we do not understand. We have enough knowledge for our purposes, and infinitely more knowledge than any individual human. We can influence their thoughts and emotions. And yet we make mistakes, one. We did not anticipate Darv's questioning attitude. We will correct his attitude, should it prove necessary. We were unable to correct the questions asked by the second generation crew. Which was why they had to be destroyed once they had provided us with the minimum crew of four. 
Those four have been totally under our control since infancy. No outside influence has been brought to bear. They will perform their function as we have predicted. And Darv? Darv has the most original questioning mind. He will need constant surveillance. That is all. So Challenger sets off to return to Earth, but reaching their home solar system, they find the planet is no longer there, and hence the title Earth Search. The other series, Mind Warp, was broadcast in April 2006 and has three episodes of 45 minutes. Mind Warp takes place before the launch of the Challenger servo ships. It is set in the dome city of Arama, a space surrounded by rock. The people of the city believe that the universe consists purely of rock and the city exists within this enclosed space. The city is controlled by a supreme being called G.O.D., the Guardian of Destiny. The people of Arama are at constant war with an enemy called Diablo, made up of the people who deny the word of the G.O.D. The story follows two trainee technicians, Ewan and Jenny. Ewan is plagued by dreams about being in a vast blue dome, and during their studies they find evidence that the rock above the city does in fact come to an end and that there is a large amount of open space above it. Ewan! Okay, I'm sorry, Janine. I'll do it properly. After all, I've put up with your bullying for so many years now I wouldn't know how to cope without you. Ewan, the question... Okay, okay. The fault is probably with the controller unit. Probably is sloppy. Probability of controller unit fault 80%. All right. Go on. Remove the controller board, test IC258 for correct logic activity on line 10. If IC258 is within spec, repeat test on IC389. Mm, very good. Word for word. And if IC258 and IC389 are working... Then it's a 90% probability that the fault is an intermittent failure of the GOD power... An interruption of the GOD power. What's the difference? The difference is between your wording and the wording in the answer. A difference that could cost you several points... You've been warned before about using that word. G.O.D. power never fails. It is interrupted. Carry on. And if it's not a G.O.D. power interruption, then a faulty slave motor or motors is 100% probability. Replace all slave motors in that section, test in accordance with public safety specification PSS slash 104A, and return motors to the nearest maintenance depot for recycling or repair. Tools required? Uh, I'd go for toolkit 108. Not bad. What do you mean, not bad? That was perfect. It would be perfect, only if you used the right wording and didn't try to be clever all the time. I don't have to try to be clever, and your constant bullying undermines my self-confidence. <laughs> all right, all right. Well, now you test me. You and you test me. What's beyond the domes? Rock, of course. We learnt that in year two. And beyond the rock? Rock is infinite. It goes on forever. What are you on about? Ask me a proper question. We ought to ignore the rock. Why? To make more domes? Or metro tunnels? There's nowhere else to go. And why would the Guardian of Destiny authorise such waste? Imagine the cost in materials to build boring machines and the energy they'd use. The population's stable. We recycle all materials. We don't need new transport tunnels. We certainly don't need new domes. I had a dream about a new dome. You what? I'm lying under a vast blue dome. And there's warmth, but a lot more warmth than we get from the Zargon lights. And I'm lying by a recreation reservoir, a huge one with lots of water... There are children playing and my hair's blowing about. <laughs> Some technician you're going to be. 
You dream about a dome which is the wrong colour and it has something wrong with its air conditioning. But in my dream it all seems so right. All of it. I wish you could see it too. Well, I don't. It sounds horrid. Sort of place birds and flies might live. Oh, I don't want to hear any more about it. Could we get on with this revision? I'm going to see Father Dudley. But now? Well, what am I supposed to do? There are exams coming up, in case you'd forgotten. Well, you can manage to open a textbook on your own, can't you? I have to ask someone about this. Someone who'll understand. Come in. Father, I hope I'm not interrupting. Oh, not at all, you and my boy. Come in. Sit down. So, how are you? End of year exams coming up, aren't they? Yes. Well, I'm quite certain you've got nothing to worry about. You're doing excellently in all your studies. Only another year and you'll be a fully qualified technician. Oh, it's not the exams. Well, what is it, Ewan? You know you can tell me. Father, father, do you really believe that rock is infinite? The word of the G.O.D. tells us it is so. But supposing the rock around us eventually comes to an end? (laughs) Do I spell blasphemy? So, the rock comes to an end. To be replaced by what, Ewan? I don't know, father... More domes? But domes are finite in size. The rock must eventually resume. But there was a dome in my dream. It wasn't finite. It seemed vast, infinite. Dream? You have dreams? Tell me. There's a vast dome, so vast that you can't see its surface. The colour of this dome is wrong, yes? Yes. It's... Uh, Blue. It's blue. Am I right? How do you know? Uh, There have been others, Ewan, long before your time. Gifted students like you. They used to have similar dreams. A vast blue dome. Others? Others with the same dream? Who? Tell me, please. So long ago. You must remember someone. Please, Father. Simo. Simo Bilan. Where is he now? Please, Father, I have to know. Simo vanished. They all vanished. How? The Diablons? No, no. This has nothing to do with the war. I think it's time, Ewan. I have something... I have something very important for you. This is a radio capsule. I don't understand. If you're ever in serious trouble, big trouble, press this button and someone will hear. What sort of trouble? I'm sorry, but I can't explain. Father? I'm sorry, Ewan. I really can't tell you any more. Trust me. Keep it with you at all times. And keep it hidden. You must promise me that you'll never tell anyone about it. If anyone ever finds it and wants to know what it is, you must say that you just found it. Do you promise me? Yes. Yes, of course, Father. I promise. Thank you. But if I were to use it, who would hear me? Someone I can trust. That's all you need to know. And don't worry about your dream. Everything will be all right, Ewan. The story ends with, spoiler, Ewan being made commander of the next Challenger mission. This is Challenger 3 of Earth Search. Like last episode's subject, Journey into Space, Earth Search is not available for free download, but you can buy them from the BBC on CD or Radio 4 Extra broadcasts them every so often in its seventh dimension slot, the last time being December 2011. It is also available as a book, Well, that's the end of Theatre of the Mind on Starship Sofa. But like our Earth Search, there is a sequel, and you don't have to wait 24 years to hear it. 
Theatre of the Mind will shift over to Crime City Central, where I will be looking at the fabulous Bold Venture, starring Humphrey Bogart and Lauren Bacall, and the dismal Rocky Fortune, starring Frank Sinatra. But if you can't bear to wait to hear more of my awful stumbling delivery, then you can catch me as DJ Frogs on spiritplantsradio.com. If you have been, then thanks for listening. And there you go. So next up is the main fiction, and it's by Chris Beckett, and the story is entitled Greenland. I'll give you a little heads up about Chris Beckett. Chris Beckett is a British social worker, university lecturer and science fiction author. He has written several textbooks, dozens of short stories and two novels. Beckett was educated at Dragon School in Oxford and Bryanston School in Dorset. He holds a B... He holds a Bachelor of Science Honours in Psychology from the University of Bristol. He has been a senior lecturer in social work at APU since 2000. He was a social worker for eight years and a manager of a children and family social work team for 10 years. Beckett has authored or co-authored several textbooks and scholarly articles on social work. Like I say, Chris has a couple of books out. He had Dark Eden, came out in 2012. March House, 2008, and The Holy Machine, 2004. He has a collection called The Turing Test, 2008. Started his short stories, I guess, 1990, with A Matter of Survival. Then all the way to Day 29, which is which, oh, which came out in 2011. This story, Greenland, came out in 2008 and it was from the Interzone edition 218, the October 2008. Edited Andy Hedgecock, Andy Cox and Jesse DeVere. It was in the kind of preliminary nominees for the British Science Fiction Award, short fiction of the 2008. This story is narrated by very own Simon Hildebrandt. Now, Simon has, as one article comes to an end, another one is slowly springing into life. Simon has offered to come up with a, like a, a computer video games on science fiction, doing this once a month. And we've had, I've, Simon was kind of, kind enough to send over the first edition of this so I can have a listen to it. And it's lovely. He's all talking about Portal. So a couple of weeks' time, we'll have the first one from Simon on computer games and science fiction. So do look out for that. So the Starship Sova is very proud to present. Greenland by Chris Beckett I was afraid once, Dr. Brennan. Thank you for asking. Muchas gracias. But now I feel pretty much at peace. What I finally managed to get through my head is that I am not in the world. I've never been in the world. This little box here where my life will end, and where your life will end too, or so you say, is barely a place at all, is it? It's barely separate at all from the emptiness beyond. So why be afraid of that small final step? You can almost hear the gossamer whispers of the stars in here, can't you? You can almost feel the pulling and tugging of the invisible threads that keep the huge wheel of the galaxy turning and turning and turning, though almost all of it is empty. Almost all of it is nothing at all. Everything is how it has to be, Dr. Brennan. Even a monster like you. That doesn't mean that what you did was right, whatever your talk about human destiny. It doesn't mean I've forgiven you. But I'm past forgiving and regretting and longing and wishing. Though I do admit that I still think of Suzanne and little Maria in their ship, 
crossing the wide ocean to Greenland. You want me to tell you my story? To start with whatever first comes into my mind? All right then, I will. The first thing that comes into my mind is green palm fronds, grey sky, bicycle rickshaws, beggars, intense heat. It's England, the high street in Oxford, between Magdalen College and the Botanic Gardens. It's the day I lost my job at the college. It's only a few weeks ago, would you believe? I remember bustling crowds, a smell of decay, a feeling of desperation. It's a scary thing to depend for your livelihood on a society which hates you. You have no idea. I remember a solitary old white man, an old Brit like you, standing on a box with the crowds pushing and shoving around him, singing in a thin, quavery voice. I shall not cease from mortal strife, nor shall my sword slip in my hand, till we have built Jerusalem in England's green and pleasant land. I'd heard it before, that strange English patriotic song with its peculiar words. What are arrows of desire? What are dark satanic mills? I suppose you must know it yourself, Dr. Brennan. We often heard it on the BBC, which we listened to in order to keep a track on the government and its erratic, perpetual, self-contradictory war on the immigrants like me, who made up most of the country's population. But though I knew that the song was about England, it never made me think about England at all. It always made me think about Greenland. Greenland with its green meadows and its green hills and its streams where Suzanne and I longed to make a home. Now, looking back, I can see that England itself was, in its way, a green place. There were green banana trees, and green rice fields, and green mangroves, and green rushes, and green waterweeds up and down the swampy greenish Thames. In fact, that was one of the first things I noticed about England, crawling out of the hold of the barge by the town dock at five o'clock in the morning. It was green. Back in Spain, where I come from, everything was red, red, red. The very first thing I noticed about England, though, was the smell. The muddy, murky stink of vegetable and animal waste, rotting under warm, brackish water. I have a degree in engineering. I speak fluent English and possible French. I am an educated man. But when you leave your own country as a refugee, when your own country, in fact, has actually ceased to exist, and you find yourself in another country that resents you and feels no obligation to you at all, You can't pick and choose what you do. It was hard, but I was never one of those immigrants who wasted time complaining about their fate. I took whatever work was going, just as I'd done in the last famine-ridden days of crumbling Spain, grateful to have a means of earning a living, grateful to have money at all and something to buy it with. I filled sandbags round the offices of the provisional government. I killed rats. I sprayed stagnant pools with insecticide. Once I even had a job pulling corpses out of the Thames marshes. I didn't stick at it for long but that was before Suzanne and Maria, and at a time when the population of England was 20 or 30 million less than it is now, so I could still afford to take the gamble of finding other work. New people were coming in all the time, people from the Mediterranean, people from Africa and China, and from what was left of the Indian subcontinent. They kept coming in their thousands every day. Never mind that the old Brits fired on their boats offshore. Never mind that the old Brits booby-trapped the beaches and machine-gunned new arrivals as they waded out of the sea. The migrants kept coming anyway, 
wave after wave, dodging mines and bullets, crawling under barbed wire, slipping inland and disappearing among the masses already here. Then they hired themselves out for so little that even those same old Brits who'd been willing to kill them to keep them out just couldn't resist their cheap labour now they were here. And each new wave was cheaper and more irresistible. However little pay I resigned myself to work for, someone would soon show up from somewhere who was willing to work for less. But I thought I'd struck it lucky with my handyman job at Magdalen College. The pay wasn't great, but I'd known worse, and I made friends with one of the fellows there, a physicist called Thatch Pham, a guy about my own age, I'm 33, whose parents had been immigrants from Vietnam. He was researching the replication of matter using resonance fields, the up-and-coming field, according to Suzanne, my new girlfriend at the time, who trained as a physicist, though now working in kitchens. Pham said he'd try and get me a job as a technician if he could. He said that sometimes it was possible to get a work permit if the university pulled the right strings, even though the old Brits normally kept work like that for their own. He would see what he could do. My mum and dad were migrants like you, he confided. I know what you guys have to go through. He also promised me that he would use his influence in senior common room to make sure they didn't replace me with cheaper labour. But those promises turned out to be worthless. Suzanne also worked at Magdalen College. She was nine years younger than me, and recently arrived from France with a score of others in a little motorboat built for family holidays on the French canals. She was pretty, graceful, funny and clever, much cleverer than me, but she was still traumatised by her losses and terrified by the challenges that faced her. She latched onto me as if I was the answer to everything. She told me I was the man she'd been looking for all her life, and for a short time I believed her, felt myself to actually be the strong, resourceful figure that she decided to see in me. We got ourselves a bedsit room on Walton Street, close to the edge of the Great Thames Marsh. We made love every morning and every night, and shared our meagre little meals as if they were royal feasts. We decided we were going to work and work until we'd somehow saved enough for tickets and visas for Greenland. There, we'd rent a little farm on a hillside and grow vegetables and raise sheep and smell the sweet, fresh air of a land that wasn't slowly sinking into the mud. But we were using cheap black market contraceptives. Suzanne fell pregnant with Maria, and that was the end of our chances of saving for anything. Suddenly, we had no aim in life other than keeping ourselves going from day to day. I'm sorry, Mr. Fernandez, said Mr. Das, the bursar of Magdalen College, but I'm afraid we have no choice. We can no longer afford to pay above the market rate, and we're going to have to let you go unless you are willing to take a 50 euro reduction in pay. 50 euros? But how can I? I have a baby, Mr. Das. A little baby to feed. We don't ask a lot. The, the three of us live in just one little room. But still, we have rent to pay. Please, Mr. Das, my daughter has asthma. Please, let me carry on without a cut in pay. I already work very hard. I'll work harder. You will get more for your money, I promise you. But you must have mercy on me, please. Mr. Das was a tiny little old Brit. I'm not very tall myself, but the top of his balding yellowish head didn't reach the bottom of my chin. Incongruously, he wore a huge grey handlebar moustache. He cleared his throat. As I say, that isn't an option, I'm afraid. But Dr. Pham promised me that... Dr. Pham has no business to promise you anything. He promised me that I'd be able to keep my job here. He said if there was any problem, it would be sorted out in senior common room. All the fellows are aware of the need to reduce labour costs in these difficult times, Dr. Pham included. He made no objection when I suggested this policy. I honestly didn't know how I could continue to eat and pay the rent. 
The new arrivals managed it by squatting in those crumbling half-drowned houses out in the marsh, and by supplementing their diet with rats and seagulls. But if you descended to that, what would you do next, when still more people had arrived and still more of Britain had sunk under the sea? Okay, I'll do it then, I growled. I'll work for less. God damn it, I've got no choice, have I? I'll just have to find another job as well. Mr. Dusk glanced uneasily back into the inner recesses of the college. Furtively, inside his jacket pocket, he pushed a button on a pager. No. On reflection, Juan, I, I think we should let you go in any case. The new applicants will have a rather more positive attitude, I think, to the salary we are prepared to pay. Please, I began, but then broke off. One of the college porters, summoned by Dr. Darcy's pager, appeared across the quad. In one hand he clutched a nightstick, in the other a fat automatic pistol. Bukowski, he was called. Ugh. He was an old Brit of the old school, his skin red and leathery, his belly hanging over his belt, his grey eyes icy with a cold and bottled-up rage. Fuck you, Das, I said. Fuck your stupid job. Fuck your stupid college. A couple of years' time, my friend, you'll be wading around in salt water. Yes, and fuck you too, Bukowski. And as for that creep Thatch fam, fuck him as well. Bukowski pointed the heavy gun at me. Shove it, Dago, he growled. Out on the high street, two policemen in a pedal car were passing by in front of the waterlogged botanic gardens, from whose broken greenhouses so many kinds of exotic plant had burst out and spread across the city and up and down the marsh. Like all cops and soldiers, they were old Brits. Paunchy and middle-aged, they wore ridiculous little blue shorts that revealed flabby, hairy legs working the pedals in unison. Sweat trickled down their red faces as they forced their way through the treacly hothouse air, nudging between hustlers and beggars and past that old man on his box, singing that patriotic song. In theory, almost everyone there was breaking British law just by being in the country, but in practice the machine gunners on the coast were the last serious attempt made by the old Brit state to hold that particular line. Get past that and you were in, though without the protection of the law or the privileges of citizenship. You worked in the black economy. You negotiated, as best you could, your own relationship with the network of protection racketeers that regulated life below the threshold of the law. You survived or not. To the old Brits, illegal immigrants were just beach rats, outside of justice, a sort of vermin. So for us, gangsters were the only law, and it was their summary justice that ensured a harvest of beach rat bodies for the corpse fishers, themselves always beach rats, to pull out of the marsh every morning. No job again. I had to fight down panic. Each time it happened, it got harder as the population grew and the resources of the country shrank. How would we eat? How would we pay the rent for our one lousy, mildewed room on Walton Street? How would we stop little Maria from getting seriously ill with her asthma and coughs and wheezes? But more than anything else, the question I asked myself was, how will I face Suzanne? She had changed so much. There had been a time when her first unthinking reaction when she saw me was to break into a smile. Now, even at the best of times, there was no smile, and her first word was usually a complaint or a grievance. She'd once been so convinced that I was someone wonderful that I even believed it myself, but now all she saw was failure and powerlessness and weakness. I can't return with no work, I decided. I'd rather just walk away, walk away and never see her or Maria again. And for a moment there, Dr. Brennan, I really did think about it. It would have hurt them both if I'd left. In fact, it would quite possibly have killed Maria. 
For how could Suzanne pay the rent and buy the food and provide care for a sickly child all at the same time? But if I walked away, at least I would be spared the shame and misery of witnessing all that. The well-being as it was, I could lose myself easily, put myself beyond the reach of Suzanne and everyone that we knew, and simply start again without that burden. I was a non-person. Suzanne and Maria were non-people. In a strange way, that's what we were even to one another. It wouldn't be so long, or so it seemed to me in that brief moment. It wouldn't be so long before they had no more substance in my mind than some old dream. Hey, Juan! I turned round. It was Thatch Pham, the Magdalene physicist, running after me, dodging passers-by. Juan! Juan, I'm, I'm so sorry, he gasped as he tried to catch his breath. Dust just told me he'd let you go. I did everything I could. Dust said you did nothing at all. Like you did nothing at all about that technician job. Well, I... It's difficult, Juan. You don't understand. I would have spoken up, but these days even a second generation migrant like me has to watch his step. Why did you say you would do something then? He was in quite a state. Sweat was running down his plump face. I'm sorry. I thought I... I just thought that... You wanted my approval. You tried to get it by lying. You're pathetic. Listen, Juan, I can get you some work. It's a bit dangerous and it's illegal, but I could get you 5000 for a day's work, plus a Republic of Greenland visa for you and your wife and your kid. Suzanne and I had never married. As beach rats, we couldn't marry, since we had no legal status. But I let that pass. Please, Thatch, don't make even more of a fool of yourself. Why should I believe this ridiculous story when you didn't do either of the things you said you'd do for me before? Because this time it's true. Uh, Please, Juan, let me buy you a drink and I'll tell you about it. You look as though you could do with one. Listen to me while you drink, and if you're not interested, that's fine, you can walk away. What will you have lost? He led the way to a nearby pub, a place of the kind that the more prosperous old Brits went to drink with a proper licence and prices inflated to some ten times the black market rate by provisional government taxes. We have something in common, Pham said as he brought me my beer. I am a Vietnamese, you are a Spaniard, but there is no longer a country called Vietnam or Spain. No, I thought, but he had British nationality and a house of his own. I was a beach rat living in a damp bedsit in Walton Street. The parallels were not that striking. As to this country, Pham said, Where is it going? Apparently the population is three times its level 50 years ago, and old Brits are outnumbered nearly two to one. But I hate old Brits, I said. Their red faces, their cold, angry eyes. Why should they run everything? Why do they think they're so much better than everyone else? Pham shrugged. The old Brits are like little children on a sandy beach. The tide's coming in and they're trying to protect their little sandcastle with its paper flag. But they will fail soon enough. They will go under. We all will. And so why get angry with them? I shrugged. All the Brits with money, Pham said, are moving to places like Greenland and Svalbard and the Antarctic Peninsula. As will you, I presume. He looked embarrassed, but didn't answer. Obviously he had some bolt hole lined up for when the sandbags and ditches were no longer enough to keep the marsh out of his precious college. Why did he try and make these claims to be like me when he so obviously wasn't? Some people, he said, are looking at the possibility of leaving the planet altogether. Yeah, I've heard. Then I looked at him in surprise. Surely that's not what you... Oh God, no. No, not me. Again, he blushed. 
Leaving the planet is fraught with difficulties, of course, he said. You only have to think of the size of rockets and the quantity of fuel that's required to take even just three or four people into space. This is very interesting, I said, downing the remainder of my beer. But I really don't have the time to. Dr. Pham clasped my arm. Just a moment, please, Juan. I'm getting to the point. As I said, it simply isn't practical to transport more than a small handful of people up from Earth into space. But as you know, there is a theoretical possibility of using matter replication to send copies of human beings to remote locations at the speed of light. I need to look for a job. You may have time to chat about matter replication, but I don't. Thanks for the beer. Wait! This time he grabbed my arm so tightly that it actually hurt. Listen, I want to help you. We immigrants have got to stick together. I angrily shook his hand off me. Well, what are you suggesting? You're not asking me to go into space. Fam laughed. No one gets a ride into space who isn't a billionaire, Juan. But listen. Here, he looked quickly around to make sure no one else was near enough to hear. Listen, I've been involved in a little work on the side, a little project on behalf of some rather wealthy backers. It's all a bit hush-hush, but they need volunteers who will let themselves be put through a resonance scanner so as to make a copy which can be transmitted to an orbital laboratory my backers have acquired. An old Chinese space station, actually, but the Chinese haven't got much use for it anymore. Not since. He gave a gloomy little shrug to represent flood, famine, and civil breakdown. You're given a muscle relaxant to temporarily paralyze you, he said. You're given intravenous oxygen. You're scanned for maybe 45 minutes. It's not pleasant, and there is a small but certainly not insignificant chance of death. I consider you a friend, Juan, and I feel I have to be honest with you about this. There's something like a 1 in 300 chance of death, which of course is terribly high in one way, and yet in another way is really quite low odds. In most cases, there's no harm to the donor at all. He glanced at me to see my reaction, perhaps fearful that I'd be angry with him for suggesting that I risk my life. But I just shrugged, so he carried on. If all goes well with the transfer which currently happens about half the time. A viable copy is received by the orbital station, which can then be used for research purposes. You will receive your payment, though, of course, whether or not the copy is viable. He grimaced. I say viable, but even when the copies seem viable at first, they never last longer than a week or two. It's the same when we've tried it with animals. And of course my backers want that sorted out, because what they want to achieve is perfect avatars of themselves and their loved ones that can wander through the stars when this poor old Earth has finally frazzled up completely. One in three hundred? I asked. I wasn't interested in the science. I didn't care what they wanted to do with the copies. What concern was that of mine? Yes. I'm afraid there's a risk associated with high doses of muscle relaxant and anaesthetics. Why am I even listening to this? This isn't real. If these backers of yours have all this money, why don't they advertise properly for volunteers? Why pick me? They never advertise because of the legal situation. You might think that the government lets anything go, but it's much more complicated than that. They let some things go, but others they're very fussy about. You can rape and kill some little beach rat waif and tip her into the marsh and no one wants to know. But if you make copies of human beings for research purposes, there's a major ethical issue and if the wrong people get to hear about it, the state will be obliged to stamp it out. It makes no sense, I agree, but I suppose it's their way of feeling in control. Again, I shrugged. They are prepared to turn a blind eye, Pham said, once again glancing nervously around. If we're very discreet, and if we only use beach... He broke off. If we only use illegal immigrants like yourself, who are legal non-persons anyway, they're prepared to turn a blind eye. 
But still, the project isn't legal, and I could lose my job if there was a crackdown, lose my job and all the privileges that go with it. I'm taking a risk telling you, but we've been friends, haven't we? You and I have been friends? Well, if you wanted to think that, I wasn't going to argue. There'd been some sort of shootout at St Giles. A big RAF airship had descended into the middle of the square and soldiers with loud hailers were keeping people back while the bodies were scooped up. We were told later by the BBC that it had been a fight between two beach rat gangs and that the army had stepped in to break it up. But it's quite possible that the gang fight story was just a pretext for one of the army's occasional bloody culls of the beach rat population in general. I saw more than 20 dead for sure, though the BBC would refer vaguely to two or three casualties. The old Brits were very brutal, but I suppose we weren't much different back in Spain in times gone by, when the Africans coming over the straits stopped being a trickle and became a torrent. We shot them too, for all the good it did us. They kept on coming anyway, and the Sahara followed close behind them. I hurried back to Walton Street. Suzanne! Suzanne! I called out as I flung open the door of our first floor room, revealing the black mould, the peeling wallpaper, the single ring cooker in the corner, the bed that filled half the space, the stained toilet in its tiny cupboard, the tangled undergrowth outside the window that led down to an old canal, now simply a somewhat deeper than usual channel running along the edge of the Great Thames Marsh that stretched all the way to what was left of London. Suzanne, something amazing has happened. I realised that I'd got into the habit of cringing in her presence. Even now, when I had good news for her, I was cringing as if I expected to blow. Annoyed with myself, I straightened up. After all, I didn't even need to tell Suzanne about losing my job at Magdalen College. That didn't matter anymore. Something amazing, Suzanne. She had been pacing the room with Maria on her hip. Petite Suzanne with her fine bones. She used to be so feminine, so gentle, so giving until she let her hair hang lank and greasy and her face finally set itself into a rigid mask of anger and disappointment and contempt. Shh, you thoughtless idiot. Maria is almost asleep. Have you been drinking? What are you doing here at this time of day? I hope you haven't lost your... Suzanne, I've been offered 5,000 euro for one day's work. 5,000. Plus Greenland resident visas for all three of us. Are you mad or just drunk? Yes, you are drunk, aren't you? I can smell the alcohol in your breath. How can you even think of drinking when we're... There was a slowly pulsing engine noise above us as the armed airship passed overhead on its way from St Giles to the low hills on the far side of the marsh. It was carrying away the corpses for cremation. Five thousand euros, Suzanne, I bellowed over the throbbing of the blades. Five thousand. Look, here is a five hundred advance already. I held a wad of fifties in front of her that Pham had put into my hands as a token that he really meant what he said. Looking back, Dr. Brennan, it's horrible to remember the low, desperate gleam that came into Suzanne's eyes. In a single instant, here was the evidence of how much poverty and fear and hopelessness had coarsened and corrupted her. But I was coarsened and corrupted too. I was just relieved that she wasn't angry with me, relieved that she wasn't going to hit me and scream at me as she sometimes did, me with my head lowered, my cheek bleeding, holding her at arm's length until the rage passed and the hopeless tears began to flow, relieved that I wouldn't have to tell her that I'd lost my job. She hurried to lay Maria down on the bed so that she could snatch the money from me. What did you have to do to earn this? She asked as she flicked through it with urgent fingers. 
I told her about the matter replication experiments and how I would have to be temporarily paralysed and scanned for 45 minutes. Which won't be easy, of course, I said, going under the anaesthetic and knowing that I could quite possibly never wake up again. As I'd approached the house, I'd allowed myself a little fantasy that Suzanne would balk a little at the risk to my life. Pathetic, I know, but I'd imagined her saying this, I need money for Maria Juan, but not at the price of losing you. And then, realising that even as a plausible fantasy this was too much to ask, I'd revise my daydream somewhat. Dear Juan, I'd imagined her saying to me, I've been so hard on you, and yet you're prepared to risk your life for me and our child. How lucky I am to have you. The heroism and selflessness of it all had almost brought tears to my eyes, and I'd quite forgotten that, not much more than an hour previously, I'd contemplated abandoning them both. So when do we get the rest of the money? was what Suzanne actually said. When I turn up for the scan, you can come with me. You can take the money in advance, and then, even if I... And Greenland visas too? Yes, in advance as well. Oh God, oh God, oh God, please let this be real. Please don't let this be some kind of hoax. I don't see how it can be. If they don't give us the money, we just walk. Well, I'll definitely come there with you, because... Thanks, I'd be glad of the... Because you're much too willing to think the best of people. I need to be sure for myself that there's not some kind of con going on. Suzanne was much cleverer than me. That was one of the things that had gradually become apparent to both of us in the time after those early days of daily lovemaking and meals eaten together off a single plate. She was cleverer and more strong-willed. Well, yes, of course, I said humbly. I felt very hurt now, and Suzanne finally sensed it. With a huge effort, she turned her thoughts reluctantly away from her fears and her unbearable hopes and noticed me. She gave a strained smile. Hey, Juan, well done. This could be it, couldn't it? This could be where our luck turns? I brightened at once. That's right. Didn't I always say something would come up? I stepped forward to embrace her. Just for a moment, she allowed herself to melt into my arms in the way that she'd done in the early days. But then little Maria began to cry, and Suzanne tensed, and pulled away from me. So on a warm, foggy morning, five days later, Suzanne and Maria and I met Fam by town docks, where the wide, shallow draft barges stop off on their way up and down Thames Marsh, between Oxford and half-drowned London. He had a little steam launch waiting for us there, and we set off through the mist, flooded buildings and dead trees looming out of the whiteness around us, and disappearing back into it again. Fam paced restlessly all the time, sometimes bothering the taciturn skipper with anxious talk, sometimes peering anxiously into the white obscurity ahead of us. Four or five kilometres west of the city, we came to an old private hospital that sat on a hill above the marsh. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. 
real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. We doctored a makeshift jetty there, and Fan put the rest of the money I was owed into Suzanne's hands along with the letters on the headed paper of the Republic of Greenland, confirming our right to enter as alien residents. I'm still puzzled by that. What kind of authority did Pham's friends have to be able to arrange that for us in a single day? I hope to God those letters were real. Anyway, then I said goodbye to Suzanne. It felt like goodbye too, even though, all being well, it would only be for less than an hour. Here, in the cold chemical atmosphere of the hospital, with that sharp sterile antiseptic smell that makes you think of shiny blades and mortuary slabs and neatly amputated limbs, she finally felt afraid for me and cried. And then, of course, little Maria cried too, my little Maria, stretching out her little hands to me to try and hold me back and bawling her head off. All of this was a great comfort to me, buoying me up and making me feel for a short time like that noble knight that Suzanne had once seen in me. An Indian doctor came out and took me into the scanner room. Pham, who'd been shifting about restlessly in the background all the while, went off somewhere to attend to the data transfer process that would transmit the configuration of every single particle that made up my body up to that old Chinese space station above the equator. The scanning machine was huge. It filled up most of a room that was five or six times the size of our entire bedseat in Walton Street, and it gave off a loud hum. I had to strip naked, be covered in clear jelly, and then lay down on a hard plastic bed where I was given the injections that would make me unconscious and keep me still while the machine did its work. As I sank under, I tried to avoid thinking about that one in three hundred possibility that I would never wake up again and instead concentrate on the fact that the overwhelmingly more likely outcome would be that I would be walking out of this place in an hour's time with all that we needed to start a new life for ourselves in the temperate north. Greenland, 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 I repeated to myself, and my last thoughts were of an emerald city shining under cloudless sky. I woke, feeling dizzy and nauseous, in a small, rather dirty room smelling of metal and oil and human sweat. I was naked, as I had been when I went under, but now I was covered all over in tubes and electrodes. And across the room, two men in blue overalls were conferring in front of a large monitor. I made it, I yelled triumphantly. Greenland, here I come. Did you guys get your copy all right? One of the men glanced round at me, a thin South Asian man with a small pointed beard. But oddly, he didn't answer or smile or even make eye contact. Conscious, he said to his companion, who was stocky and black. That makes a change. The black man laughed. I made it, he mimicked, caricaturing my Spanish accent. Greenland, here I come. I wish I had a dollar every time they said that. I tried to sit up, found I was strapped down onto the bed with strong canvas belts. Hey, what's going on? You said I could get up and walk as soon as I got through the scan. The first man, the Asian, stood up and came over, casting his eyes coolly over my body. Looks pretty good, he said. Looks pretty functional to me. What about an answer to my question, I demanded. What kind of hospital are you running here? 
The first man grinned across at his companion. What kind of hospital, Toussaint? What kind of hospital would you say this was? They both laughed. Is there some problem, I said? Have I suffered some damage of some kind? They both laughed at this, but completely ignored my question. The Asian man picked up a phone. Dr. Brennan? 8856 has come out well. Everything working fine. Heart, lungs, metabolism, talking, emotional agitation, everything. Best one all day. I strained to hear the voice on the other end of the line. Your voice, of course, as it turns out. But I was prevented by a crackly PA announcement, which seemed to come from a corridor outside. Docking in five minutes. I repeat, docking in five minutes. Primary crew to docking stations. I repeat, primary crew to docking stations. Over. Let's hope there's a bit more liquor on board this time, the black man said. Last time it all went in a day. It was a trick, wasn't it? I said, I'm not going to Greenland, am I? I'm not going to get to keep that $5,000. Can you believe I still had no inkling of my circumstances? I knew something was wrong, but I didn't have the slightest idea of what that something was. I suppose if you wake up and remember that you're a man called Juan Fernandez, then that's who you are. It's not a conviction that can be easily dislodged. The black man giggled a little uncomfortably and looked at his friend. Why won't you speak to me? I strained at the straps which held me down. Why are you behaving like I'm not here? Were we on a boat of some kind? I wondered. It did look like a boat, with its walls made of bolted metal plates. Had this all been an elaborate kidnapping? Had I been sneaked out of the back door of that hospital on the hill, while Suzanne and Maria waited for me out front? Had I been loaded onto some barge? But why would they pay out 5,000 euro for that? They could have easily, and much more cheaply, just snatched someone from the street. No one would worry about a missing beach rat. Beach rats were there for the taking. So why bother with the money and the Greenland visas? Please, I pleaded with them. I don't know what's happening, and I don't know why you don't want to speak to me, but can't you just tell me where I am and how I got here? For some reason, both men had bent over their console of instruments while I was speaking. Perfect, the Asian man exclaimed. We haven't had one this good for weeks. What's perfect, I cried. How can it hurt to talk to me? Where am I? Where are my wife and daughter? Again, they had stooped over their console while I was speaking. You've kindly explained to me since that they were watching my brainwaves. Now they both made little noises of pleasure and satisfaction. Even better than last time, the black man said. I mean, look at it. He was interrupted by a metallic clunking sound that seemed to originate somewhere far away in the building or boat or whatever it was. I still hadn't got it. I still had no idea what my real situation was. And the whole structure shook. Both men looked up towards the door, not because there was anything to see, but because they knew the sound was coming from that direction. They're supposed to dock with this station, grumbled the black man, not fucking ram it. What's happened? Where am I? I wailed. So finally the black man, Toussaint, turned on me. Shut the fuck up, 8856. Do you hear me? You're a copy. You're not a person. You haven't got a wife and kids. You don't even have a mind. Hey now, Toussaint. The Asian man scolded. Don't talk to it. You know that's not a good idea. I know, Abdul, but it was starting to get on my nerves. What do you mean I haven't got a mind? I'm Juan Fernandez. I can talk. I can think. I'm a human being. And the black man, Toussaint, spoke very softly through gritted teeth, without looking at me, without even really addressing me, as a man might mutter at a recalcitrant computer or swear at a car that won't start. You're not a human being. You're a copy of a human being.
I remembered a conversation I'd had with Suzanne the night before we went down to town dock. I was uncorking the bottle of Scottish wine that we'd recklessly bought to celebrate our imminent escape. Suzanne, she was once a physicist, remember, was wondering aloud about that persistent problem with the replicator that Pham had mentioned to me. Why did the copies never manage to survive for more than a few weeks? I've no idea, I said. I didn't ask him anything about it. The money and the Greenland visas, those were the important things as far as I was concerned. Who cared about their research? I don't, said Suzanne. Not really. But I expect your copy will. How do you mean? Well, they don't just copy the body, do they? They copy the brain and the thoughts and everything. So if the copy is viable, even for a short time, it will have thoughts and feelings, won't it? And I guess it will have quite strong feelings about being trapped in a space station and used for research, don't you think? You should know better than me, though, Juan, because it's you they make a copy of. It'll feel whatever you'd feel. This shook me a little. Would it really have my memories and feelings and everything? I asked after a pause. Well, yes. That's the whole idea, isn't it? So people can project themselves out across space. I suppose. I wonder how that feels, not being a real person at all, but having someone else's memories. I suppose they don't feel like someone else's memories. After all, they're the only memories it has. So that would mean... That would mean it would think it was me, wouldn't it? When it wakes up on that satellite, it will think it is me, waking up in a hospital after the anaesthetic, and then it'll find out that... I broke off. I wonder what they'll do with it, I said. Suzanne shrugged. Test its reactions, its nerves, its biochemistry? Cut it up, see if its organs are working properly? I've really no idea. Will it be able to feel pain and fear, do you think? Why not? Assuming that it's one of their successful attempts, it'll be alive. It will have a body, it will have a brain. Madre de Dios, what have I done? It will be like me, it will feel the same feelings, and I have sent it up there to let it be cut into pieces. I shouldn't have done this, should I? What? And not get out of lousy England? Miss a chance of a new life for Maria in a country where there is still green grass and cool air and space? You must be joking. Yes, but... Oh, for goodness sake, Juan, bad things happen all the time. Real people are tortured every day. Real people are killed. All over the world, real people in their thousands starve and drown and die of thirst. What concern is it of ours what happens to one stupid copy on some old satellite in space? It's not as if we'll have to see the thing. It's not as if we'll ever know what happens to it. It might as well be in a different universe altogether, for all it concerns us. I thought for maybe three seconds, then laughed. You're right. Who cares? What business is it of ours? And with that I raised my glass and proposed a toast to the three of us and our future. To Greenland. To Greenland and a new life. As I drained my wine, I glanced across the room. Then I turned and winked at Suzanne. Look, darling, Maria's fast asleep. Shall we really celebrate? And that was the first and last time, before I went into the scanner, that I thought, even for a moment, about what that copy would experience. I lay there for a long time, taking in what Toussaint, in his irritation, had told me. So you didn't trick the real Juan Fernandez? I finally said. He really did get the 5,000 euro and the visas? He really is on his way to Greenland? Your two delightful technicians ignored me as they always did. I had grasped my situation intellectually now, but emotionally I was light years away from getting hold of it. 
I had no other identity but that of Juan Fernandez, and no other memories but Juan's, no other perspective but Juan's way of seeing the world. It was simply not psychologically possible to think of myself as being anyone other than Juan, even though Juan was actually a man who cared nothing for me, for he had dismissed any responsibility for my well-being after only a few moments of thought. So this body here, this body never existed on earth? Toussaint picked up the phone. What's keeping you guys? He complained. When are you going to take 8856 off our hands? We finished all the routine stuff half an hour ago and it's driving me nuts with its babbling. Plus Abdul and I want to get our hands on some of that liquor before it all goes. Your voice in the earpiece said something. Toussaint's irritable tone softened. Straight to your office, Dr. Brennan? Okay, we'll bring it right down. Thanks very much. Physical testing, I cried. Please tell me, what on earth is that? Please, tell me, what on earth is that? Toussaint mimicked me in a cartoon Spanish accent as he and Abdul wheeled my bed to the door. The corridor was narrow and curved up visibly at both ends as it encircled the revolving space station. There was a smell of perished rubber and cabbage and urine. They wheeled me past a forlorn, grubby little cafeteria where four or five other technicians in blue overalls sat, drinking. Hey, Toussaint! Whiskey! Going to come and join us? One of them called out. Soon as we've dumped this thing. On the wall of the cafeteria was a wide, flat screen showing the image of the planet Earth beneath us. Unusually, there was very little cloud, and almost the entire Atlantic was laid out as clearly as if this was a geographer's globe. Red desert extended over all but the northern fringes of what land was visible. Greenland, though, was green. I imagined the real Juan, with Suzanne and Maria, slowly crossing the wide sea towards it. It struck me that if only the resolution of the screen were high enough, I would be able to see their ship. I ached inside as I thought about Suzanne and my little girl, who I would never, ever see again, far, far away from me. The real Juan, on the other hand, I could happily have killed. How could he have put me out of his mind so quickly and easily, I wondered. A glass of wine, a promise of sex, that was all it took to stop him thinking about me. Yet, I'm not a stranger. I'm not someone whose needs are so different from his that he'd find them hard to understand. I'm like him in every single way. But then we reached your office, Dr. Brennan, and a beautiful friendship began. Look at you in your crumpled jacket and your Heinrich Himmler glasses and your face racked with longing and self-hatred and principles. The compassionate sadist, the doctor whose ethics forbid him to follow the Hippocratic Oath, the loner hiding away in a metal box in space, waiting for defective copies of human beings to be delivered up to his scalpel and his needles and his kind, solicitous voice. I must apologize for my technicians, he said. They have a superstitious idea that copies don't have souls. It helps them to live with what they're doing, though of course it makes no logical sense since the whole enterprise is based on the premise that a copy is, or could be, fully human. Then you shook your head sadly. Of course, I know that you have feelings every bit as much as I do, and that... Your voice cracked slightly, and for a moment you seemed on the verge of tears. And that makes it all very hard for me. Very hard. You've no idea. But be assured of my sympathy at all times, and be assured that I will reduce to a minimum any pain that I have to inflict. After which you tortured me for some time. Yes, Dr. Brennan, tortured. That is the correct word. With electric shocks and cuts inflicted without anaesthetic. Your face gleamed with sweat, contorted with excitement and shame. You kept apologizing. I'm so sorry. I hate this. I only wish there was another way. 
but you wouldn't stop, and I was powerless to stop you. It was unendurable, yet unescapable. I will never forgive you for it, though as I'm going to be dead very soon, I guess you needn't worry too much about that. There, you said at last, that's the worst part over. You were pale and trembling, your gloved hands slimy with my blood. Ghastly for both of us, but it's done, you said. I always feel it's best to get that out of the way at the outset. For all the other procedures, normal anaesthetics can be used. Please accept my apologies for what I've just inflicted on you. I'm afraid it is necessary because an abnormal pain response is one of the characteristics of defective copies, and we absolutely have to try and... Suddenly you rushed out. Was it to be sick, or to masturbate, or to visit one of your other mutilated copies in some other grubby little cell? Or was it just to mop your face and gulp down the spirits that I smelled on your breath when you returned? Another technician, a white man this time, I think perhaps a Russian or a Pole, came in and wiped the blood off me with a cloth. He wouldn't meet my eyes or answer my questions. Then you were back, gently explaining to me how you were going to have to remove parts of me for tests. My intestines, my pancreas, an arm, a foot. I assure you, Juan, I'm a good doctor, and I will do everything in my power to keep you painless and comfortable throughout the time you have left, you said, reaching down and squeezing my hand reassuringly. I think this is probably the only kind of intimacy you ever get, isn't it? I think the only time which you are able to feel close to another human being is when you have some wretch like me strapped down in front of you and you are about to begin eviscerating them. You really believe that you're being respectful and kind, don't you? You really believe you are doing your best by us. I think you even experience an emotion that seems to you to be love. How long have you been up here? I asked. I live here all the time, he said. This is where I will end my days. We're part of the problem, he told me another time. I had been shackled by two technicians and made to walk around a bit, then strapped back on the bed where they had given me some knockout pills and left me alone for a period of artificial sleep. I've no way of knowing how long the sleep was for, or whether it corresponded in any way with what we would normally call a night. I had a drip to feed me, a catheter to carry away my wastes. After I woke, you removed my kidney under a local anaesthetic, and had a technician carry it off to histology to be sliced up for tests. There was a screen on the wall of the room, and at my request, you set it to show the view of the great glow below us. We doctors are part of the problem, Juan, my friend, you said as you stood beside me, contemplating our half-burnt and half-drowned planet. Medical science is one of the reasons that Earth got so bad. The things that are normally blamed, excessive carbon dioxide, pollution, deforestation, they're really all secondary factors. You could cut down trees and drive cars without doing any harm at all if there were only a few million people on the planet. But when the population got up to over a billion and a half and then goes on to quadruple itself less than a century later, well, how can that be viable? How can it? The human race needed pestilence. Doctors, in their arrogance, took it away. I came up here to do this work because, in my own small way, I wanted to atone for the harm we doctors had done by dedicating my medical knowledge to the service of the human future. I know it's horrible what I do here. It is wretched for you people, and believe me, it's wretched for me too. It eats away at me. I'm slowly destroying myself. I keep doing it because I believe it is important for us to find a way of making a new start. I'm sacrificing myself for this cause as much as I'm sacrificing you. You glanced down at me, hoping for a response. Nombre de Dios. I thought Fam was bad enough with his preposterous attempts at brotherhood, 
but this was something else. What were you expecting from me, Dr. Brennan? Pity? Did you want this doomed copy of a human being, tortured and mutilated by you, to tell you that you'd done the right thing? Well, I said nothing. And you sighed, and you carefully explained to me about the next stage of my dismantling, to begin in 24 hours after another chemically induced rest. It was almost as if you were a proper doctor, and were trying to make me better. I suppose it can't be long now until I'm just matter again, like I was until only a few days ago, when a soup of unconnected particles was temporarily gathered together by a resonance field and moulded into a replica of a human being called Juan Fernandez. I'll soon just be soup again, won't I? This body will be broken down into plasma, and then you'll set up a new resonance field, and it will pull those particles back together again, this time in the shape of someone else. Some stranger who I'll never know will be formed out of this very same stuff that now forms me. I'm not really Juan Fernandez, I know that. I'm not really anyone at all. But I still think of Suzanne and Maria, and the real Juan on their boat, crossing the wide ocean to Greenland. I can't help wondering if Suzanne is grateful to Juan for what he's done, and whether she wriggles up warm and soft against him in their little berth, with the cold sea forgotten outside, and whether she melts and moans and sighs like she once used to. And if so, I wonder, does it ever occur to either of them to think of this doomed prisoner up here, this eviscerated amputee, who really paid the price? For what price did he pay? What did he have to give up? Well, I doubt it. It's not that they're heartless monsters, really. It's that people just don't worry all that much about consequences that they don't have to see, or care that much about other people that they've never had to meet. It's just the way that human beings are. Unless, of course, they're like you, Dr. Brennan, with your noble dreams of reaching out across the stars and saving the human race. Actually, I prefer the flower meadows of Greenland as a goal to aim for. Flower meadows and mountain streams and cool summer breezes. Maria will like all that, I think to myself, and even now it makes me smile. Maria will just love all of that. I would never really have left them. I would never really have walked away. There you go. Don't forget, copyright is Chris. Chris, thank you so much. Again, like we have some more stories by Chris, so do look out for them if you like Chris Beckett. And Simon, thank you. And I'm looking forward to your little article once a month. Next up is Fact Articles, our very own Mr. JJ Campanella, Science News for August, Jim. Greetings and aggravations, my good and loyal listeners, and welcome to this August 2012 Science News Update. I'm your host for this lovely and amazing science podcast, Jim Campanella. You guys have no idea how close you were to getting no science podcast this month. I and my family have spent most of the month homeless. Uh, that is slightly less melodramatic than it sounds, but only slightly. We've been in the process of buying a new house now for months. The closing date for the purchase of our new home was supposed to be several weeks ago. We prepared everything for the closing, including selling our previous home just prior to the date of the planned new purchase. We changed addresses, utilities, and arranged for the movers. At the last minute, when nothing could be altered on that frenzied downhill flight, we were told by the seller's bank that they were not prepared for the closing they had scheduled, and that we needed to wait. We were told we could move our belongings into the new home, but the sellers, who had 
long previously fled the state, would not even negotiate for any use and occupancy of said new home. That meant that we could not go back to the house we had just sold, and we could not move into the new home. I will not give you the details on the last several nightmarish weeks that I, my wife, and young children have had to endure until the heartless seller's lawyer, realtor, and bank decided that they were ready to close just yesterday. Suffice it to say that I have even less respect for banks and lawyers than I had before, which was not a great deal to begin with. At any rate, we finally closed yesterday, and I'm here writing this month's frivolity for you guys. I'm not quite sure who is more nuts, me for writing this, or you guys for listening to my meanderings, but I thank you for your allegiance nonetheless. Tonight I will cover a couple of science stories, but I will also be reviewing a new science book, which I have not done in a while. In fact, the first story of the evening, as you'll see in a few minutes, is actually related to the book in a rather tangential way. I once had a friend who said that both men and women are drawn to beautiful women. That is, both men and women objectify the female body. I was puzzled by this comment, especially since my friend was basically a feminist. But she clarified. She said that men obviously want to possess beautiful women in a sexual way, with the desire of one heterosexual woman for another is something entirely different. This made me even more puzzled because I was young and naive at the time, and it never occurred to me that one woman would have any interest in the body of another woman. However, my friend, an anthropology major, if I remember correctly, explained that the desire of one heterosexual woman for another has to do with a desire for a more perfect body. My friend told me that women are drawn to beautiful female bodies because they want to possess them for their own. They want that perfect body. I have no idea what truth there is to that. My friend insisted that every woman, no matter how perfect she is, sees only her flaws and always desires a more perfect body, whether it be better hair, better breasts, better legs, better tummy, etc. Well, in a recent paper by Dr. Sarah Gervais from the University of Nebraska, which was published in the European Journal of Social Psychology, we find an examination of how men and women actually perceive female bodies. And it is interesting that both sexes pretty much size up a female body in much the same way. After viewing dozens of images of male and female bodies, participants in Gervais's study were shown two new side-by-side -side images, one an exact duplicate of a previously viewed image, and the other a slightly modified version of the original showing a sexual body part. The participants were then asked which of the two images they had previously seen. Once the results were analyzed, the researchers found that women's sexual body parts were more easily recognized when shown in isolation and separate from the entire body. However, men's sexual body parts, on the other hand, were more recognizable in the context of the entire body. What does that mean? It suggests that because your brain perceives an object as being either a coherent entity or a collection of parts, you rely on two different cognitive processes, what the authors call global and local scanning. It also appears that which of those scanning processes you use depends on whether you're gazing upon a woman or a man. When you, male or female, look at a woman, you see her as consisting of various body parts. But if it's a man, you tend to see him as a single whole. 
And this makes sense. A male, upon seeing a woman, objectifies her and sizes up her parts, either consciously or unconsciously, as a potential mate. This is evolution, ladies and gentlemen, and wired in programming. But why are women doing this objectifying scanning process? Why are women lumping other women in with cars and trees and houses in their scanning analysis as objects? I suspect it goes beyond the analysis my anthropologist friend suggested to me decades ago. Yes, women all want to possess beautiful bodies, but that is not why they are scoping out other women as men do. From a reproductive and evolutionary standpoint, what makes the most sense is that they are comparing themselves to the competition. Does that other woman have better breasts, legs, arms, face, etc. than I do? Is she competition with me for my mate? Is she good enough looking to cause me trouble? Dr. Gervais says that even though our responses are hardwired, both men and women can overcome the objectification in visual analysis. She says, quote, Knowing that your brain takes gender into account when looking at a person can help you understand why you're seeing a person in a certain light and how you can change your behavior accordingly. It's quite possible, for example, that these responses are reinforced by social conditioning, that is, popular culture and media. And by knowing our potential for this process, we can short-circuit it. Unquote. Next story. According to Dr. Henry Sauerman from Georgia Institute of Technology in the latest issue of the journal Plus One, PhD students in science are having trouble getting academic jobs and aren't being prepared for other career options. At the moment, we have a glut of graduates who are getting science doctorates around the world. And even though most of them expect and hope to get jobs teaching and doing research at a university, most will not. Sauerman surveyed Ph.D. students about their interest in various career options from academia, government, and private industry. As a result, he found that biology, chemistry, and physics students often lost interest in faculty teaching and research jobs during their studies. I really can't blame them. It turns out that only about one in four ever gets a teaching job, and that's the average. The breakdown for each area of science is even worse. Specifically, the biology PhDs have the most competition. According to the National Science Foundation, just 14% of PhDs in the biological sciences hold tenure-track positions five to six years after graduation. Biology is the lowest number compared to 21% for physicists and 23% for chemists. You would think it is simply a reflection of very few academic jobs that are out there, but Saruman says, no, that's not the case. Quote, no, there are a large number of positions, but given the number of people looking for them, the chances of getting one is pretty rare, unquote. Meanwhile, doctoral advisors continue to push their students toward academic careers, which Sauerman says is, quote, dysfunctional because it exacerbates the labor imbalances. These advisors are responsible for more than just a student's doctoral research project. There's also a role in them for shaping career decisions and perceptions of what careers will look like, unquote. I know my own university department has been discussing starting a doctoral program for quite a while, and among the issues that have been brought up is the glut of graduates out there with doctorates. We just can't convince ourselves that it's fair to students to educate them and send them out into an already crowded field. 
The analogy would be how difficult it would be to justify opening a new Starbucks coffee house when there are already five within a block of you. Next story. Here is one thing you may not know about me. I am a first-degree black belt in the Japanese martial art of Iaido. Iaido is not a hand-to-hand martial art. It is a sword art that has been compared to the quick draw of the gunslinger from the Old West. Every one of our kata, or practice forms, is performed from a starting position where the sword is sheathed and must be pulled out for immediate use. It took me ten years to get pretty good at the use of the sword. As my teacher says, Yaido is an art where there is so much subtlety that you continually make bad habits in order to fix them and make good habits. People have asked me why I bother to learn such an archaic art. It's not like I'm likely to get into any sword fights in New Jersey. My answer is simple and twofold. First, just like any ancient art, by learning and mastering it, you keep it alive so it can be passed along to the next generation. In that sense, it's an honor and duty to perfect these arts. And second, if science fiction writers S.M. Sterling and J.J. Abrams are right, then we should all be prepared to defend ourselves without the luxury of firearms in case the light of civilization ever goes out. What is the apparently completely off-topic point I'm making? Learning new skills can be hard. It takes time and, above all, practice. Only through a gradual process of trial and error do we acquire the ability to walk, speak, or play the trumpet. This process is called motor skill learning, and it involves two structures within the brain called an actor, which adjusts the behavior of the animal, and a critic, which monitors the effects of the adjustments and compares them with the desired outcome. The interaction between the two brain regions results in a reinforcement of the adjustments made by the actor that the critic thinks will take the behavior closer toward the desired outcome until practice has indeed been made perfect. In short, once you understand what you should be doing correctly, you self-adjust and fix it. You do this over and over and over until you've mastered the process. We've all experienced this. The reason I brought up Iaido at all is that for a decade I've been taught in exactly the way described. You learn the basic sword and body movements and then refine and refine and refine until they approach the ideal in your head. However, this manner of teaching and learning physical skills is not quite what we believe it to be. A paper published this month in the journal Nature by Dr. Jonathan Charlesworth examines the neurophysiological hypothesis that the gradual changes implemented by the actor are an important part of this learning, and that the critic monitors progress by feedback received from the movements that are generated as a result of these changes. Apparently, he finds some evidence that disputes the hypothesis. Finches can be trained to change the pitch of their song. It's a slow process of motor skill learning requiring the anterior forebrain pathway as the actor area and the dopaminergic neurons within the basal ganglia as the critic area. Researchers tested whether the adjustments implemented by the anterior forebrain pathway actor were required in the training process by blocking the output of the actor to the critic motor system with a drug before training. So essentially, they cut off communication between the actor and the critic. As expected, the finches did not gradually change their song in response to the training regime when the drug was applied. 
However, when the authors removed the drug, the birds immediately produced a perfectly modified pitch. The finches, therefore, skipped all the steps that they normally take during the training process and instantly went from novices to experts. The findings suggested that the step-by-step improvements normally seen during training are not required for learning. It would be like being given a drug, teaching a newbie to pitch a curveball, taking the drug away, and then finding that the newbie pitches a perfect curve. However, when the team disrupted neuronal activity within the actor itself during training and did not just disrupt communications, they found that not only was there no gradual improvement, but also the birds did not modify their songs after the drug was removed. They concluded that inactivating the actor area completely interferes with learning, suggesting that activity within the circuit is required during learning. These findings show that finches can modify their song even without gradual improvements, suggesting that the critic does not monitor the consequences of the actor's adjustments. So how does the critic brain area know whether to tell the actor it is improving? The authors speculate it is not the animal's movements that the critic looks at, but the underlying brain activity instead. The critic probably receives a representation of the activity of the motor system, what the authors call a efference copy, which it uses to identify successful adjustments. The study takes a huge leap forward toward identifying the neuronal mechanisms underlying motor skill learning. Just don't think it'll help you become the next BB King. You're still going to have to practice. Okay, I promised you a book review. I was a bit skeptical when this new science book was recommended to me, but try to control your snickering as I tell you the title. The book is by Florence Williams, who is not a scientist, but she is an excellent writer and very thoughtful, and from what I can see, more thorough than most scientists I have read. The title of the book is Breasts, A Natural and Unnatural History. The book was published in the last couple of months of 2012 from W.W. W. Norton and Company of New York and London. Again, you may chuckle a bit and wonder why I'm recommending or reading a book about boobs, but the book is far more than that. It's not lascivious or purient in any way. Just as that statement is going to encourage some of you to read it, I suspect many of you will be just as disappointed by it. The book covers many topics about breasts in language any common person can understand. It's not a scientific tome, and when she does talk about science, Williams is very accessible. The first topic she covers in the book deals with the big question of why human females are the only mammal with breasts that are always visible. For those of you who do not remember, one of the ways that mammals are defined, besides fur and warm blood, is by our milk production. You may not know this, but every other mammalian female has a swelling in the breasts, making them visible only when she is producing milk. They reduce down to the same size as the male of the species the rest of the time. Human female breasts swell during pregnancy and breastfeeding, and they do reduce in size, but they are quite visible the rest of the time as well. So why is it different in humans? Williams suggests two different possibilities. After traveling around the world to talk to leading evolutionary biologists and anthropologists, I figure, by the way, that she must have gotten a huge advance from Norton to do all the traveling she did, 
In New Zealand, she speaks with doctors Alan and Barnaby Dixon, who are leaders in research that suggests that breasts are used in humans as sexual signals. They are courtship devices born out of our competition and selection. Quote, the Dixons believe that enlarged breasts are seductive adornments advertising genetic quality. Those who attracted the best mates had fitter offspring and ultimately larger number of descendants, so the trait of large breasts persisted. This is the essence of sexual selection as posited by Charles Darwin, unquote. The Dixons also explained that the health and perkiness of the breast tissue is going to indicate the age of the woman and whether she's likely young enough and healthy enough to have children. Saggy breasts that have been exposed to gravity and age are going to be less attractive to a mate. Williams goes on to discuss the alternative hypothesis to what she calls the old boys network idea. She and other female researchers have insisted that male scientists, even though they deny it, are so obsessed with the breast itself as a sexual object that they can't see the forest for the trees. Williams interviews one of my neighbors at Rutgers University, Dr. Francis Masha Lees, who says the breast as a sex signal hypothesis is nonsense. Quote, If firm, big breasts tell a man that a woman is fertile and ready for sex, then why would her breasts be biggest and firmest when she's already pregnant and lactating? Why is there such a variation in human breast size and shape? And why are so many women with tiny breasts spectacularly successful at nursing, childbirth, and child rearing? Unquote. Masha Lees says that breasts developed through natural selection, not sexual selection. Williams states the argument quite nicely, quote, It seems perfectly reasonable, if not more reasonable, to suppose that there was something about having breasts that increased the fitness of the woman and her offspring. Male interest was secondary. Breasts help increase a woman's fat reserves. In the poor or unpredictable environment of our early evolution, those extra fat depots could have made the difference in being able to sustain pregnancy and lactation. Unquote. There is a lot more to that argument and a lot more detail to support it, but you may want to read the book and find that out for yourself. But the book does not just delve into the natural history of the breast. It also examines how humans have messed around with its natural history through accident or on purpose over the last 50 years or so. Williams gives the entire history of the surgical breast implant, as well as some of its prehistory, she interviews the medical leaders of the breast implant movement in Houston, Texas, where it all began. But what blew me completely away was that Williams finds out who the first woman to get a breast implant in 1962 was, Timmy Jean Lindsay. Williams tracks her down some 50 years later and interviews her. You will really want to read the interview. Timmy Jean is like a survivor of the Hindenburg or the Titanic crash. The details of her story are just amazing. In a chapter called Spring Comes Early, Williams spends quite a bit of time on what is causing our female children to grow up earlier than ever before and start breast development, as well as what is causing our sons to be ever more infertile. The short answer is a multitude of man-made chemicals in our environment. As any frequent listener to this podcast knows, I've been crusading for years against the evils of bisphenol A, the estrogen-mimicking chemical in most of our plastics, 
BPA and dozens more chemicals like it are making our environment a toxic sludge of additives that are messing up not only the bodies of the older among us, possibly leading to cancer and infertility, but the youngest among us as well. One of the fascinating little experiments that Williams does in the book, along with her young daughter, is a chemical body burden test. Williams goes wild for three days using lots of lotions and fragrances and getting her nails done with the usual load of chemicals, etc. She then takes a sample of her blood and sends it off for analysis of her body burden of toxic compounds. After that, she goes on a chemical fast where she does not drive in her car for three days, plastic seats, off-gas chemicals, uses no shampoo or fragrance lotions, avoids meat and cheeses wrapped in plastics, avoids water from bottles or even water from the tap because it is likely contaminated, goes to no stores because the store receipts have BPA in high levels, eats no food at all that comes into contact with plastics, uses no sunglasses with BPA plastic, uses no computer with a plastic keyboard, and avoids lipstick and deodorant. After the detox, she then took her blood sample again to send it in for analysis. I will leave it for the book to tell you the details, but surprisingly, even for so unscientific a study, she got very clear results where her body burden of most estrogenic toxins dropped after only three days. If it's true that we are awash in a sea of toxins, at least we know we can lower our burden of those known toxins if we really intend to. The real worry is that the exposome, as some scientists are calling it, is not very well documented. In other words, we do not even know all the toxins that are out there in our environment because the U.S. government has only demanded that maybe one out of a hundred be tested. In an interview in the book, Dr. George Bittner of the University of Texas suggests that it may be impossible to make a plastic that does not have some estrogenic chemical factors in it. Quote, Bittner and his colleagues chopped up hundreds of products ranging from plastic wrap to soda bottles and storage containers. They broke down each of them in a saline solution and fed those to tissue cultures of estrogen-sensitive breast cancer cells. Over 90% of the extracts made cancer cells grow, including many that are supposed to be BPA-free. There may be hundreds, if not thousands, of chemicals used to make plastics that have estrogenic activity. Unquote. Williams does a nice job of covering important topics like breast development, lactation, breastfeeding, and breast cancer, which comes up again and again throughout the book, even though it has a chapter all to itself. She is a thorough, humorous, and entertaining writer who covers an amazing amount of ground in her book. I do recommend this. Well, that's all for me for now. As always, take care. Stay away from, um, everything? And I hope I've inspired some of you. Until next time, this is Jim Campanella. <laughs> Always a pleasure, Jim. Thank you very much. <laughs> busy, busy, busy. I'm going to try and get Jim to, like I was talking a couple of months ago about getting Jim to do one of these lectures, you know, on the kind of, you know, science news or, you know, anything to kind of do with that, do one of these live lectures as well. So 
hopefully we'll try and I'll try and hook that up as well. In a couple of days' time as well, while while we're on talking with lectures as well, there is something something big, something new happening which. Do look out for if you're kind of interested in science fiction writing. Starting a new set of series of workshops in science fiction. But I'm kind of, what, and I actually, I wish I could write. You know what I mean? I'd bloody go myself, I'd turn up myself. The cool thing is, I'm just kind of picking like one particular author. And the title of these workshops is going to be How to Write Science Fiction With. You know, that's the kind of whole genre topic. And the first one up is I've got Joe Haldeman. So look out for that when it comes. Like I say, it's going to be a couple of days before I kind of get things sorted out. I mean, I've been working in the background for it on a, for a couple of months, to be quite honest. But like I say, I've got to sort it out. But do look out for that one, once it launches. We're going to go with Joe Haldeman on the 11th of November, which is, that's the day we're going to have that workshop. And like I say, it's just going to be more of like a reminisce of science fiction for Joe, you know, like what, how he kind of came through it tips and techniques, you know, anything that kind of, you know, might help a writer, you know, who, who enjoys science fiction or who wants to listen to someone like Joe Haldeman. Do you know what I mean? Oh, man, kind of forever war guy. Wow. So look out for that. You know what I mean? And like I say, I've got a couple more authors lined up as well. How to write science fiction with. And the other one is Spider Robinson. That's coming as well. So do look out for those. Like I say, I'll give you plenty of warning when they're coming out, but that was just a little heads up. But also, don't forget, Amy H. Sturgis, this Saturday, the Hunger Games and science fiction tradition. Until then, just like to say, good night from me. Will our heroes survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honour and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Starship Sofa. Evacuation procedure initiated. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Shuttle set for launch. Airlock will be opened in 3, 2, 1. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com Thank you for listening.